a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Welcome to Indubitably and welcome to the second part of our two-part series on the Israel-Hamas conflict. I'm Kelly. I'm Josh. And this is the first time we've done a multi-part series, and this was kind of an unexpected multi-part series. Depressingly turned into a multi-part series. Obviously, Israel-Hamas is still dominating news headlines. It's going to have, and it already has had, massive repercussions in the lives of the people involved, the outlook for the region, global politics, and just establishing standards for how the world responds to situations like this. And as much as this is certainly an extreme example, and that we would hope a conflict like this is rare and a once in a lifetime situation for us to observe, that's not true. We know these sorts of conflicts happen all of the time and will continue to happen in different regions and elsewhere in the world. Right. So before we get started on this episode, if you feel as though you could use a bit more context as to the current state of affairs in this Middle Eastern region, you can go back to our previous episode where we cover the last 50 years or so leading up to this, as well as the last couple of months since the October 7th Hamas attack that served as the catalyst for this most recent exacerbation of the conflict. You don't necessarily need to listen to that episode if you have a decent knowledge base, but biased as I might be, I'd say it's definitely worth listening to both episodes as a subject like this is certainly too much to cover in one hour. And we have a very different set of material we will be going over in this episode as compared to the last one. Mm -hmm. And it could be hard to keep up with current events, especially in any in-depth way that goes beyond headlines or hashtags. Ironically, hashtags is one of the main things we'll be talking about today, but we do a lot of research and reading ourselves to make sure that we keep up to date with the most current information on the issues we cover. And we do a lot of thinking and writing, mostly because we're nerds, but also for your sake, indubitably listeners, to try and provide a more nuanced or thought-provoking conversation than you might get from generic news coverage. So... If you find it useful, we haven't bugged you in a while about this, but consider leaving us a rating or review on whatever platform you happen to listen to indubitably on. Especially if they are going to be five-star ratings or higher. I don't know what other platforms scales look like. (laughs) And if your reviews are glowing, that would be fantastic. Exclusively if they're going to be five stars or higher. No, we're not going to silence people who don't like us, but we're definitely going to encourage the people who do. Speaking of this being a two-part series, I want to actually start by going back to our last episode. And besides ratings or reviews, on Spotify in particular, uh, it allows for us to put up polls after each episode. And so after our most previous part one of the Israel-Hamas conflict, we asked the question, is there a solution that is likely to work long-term for this issue? And I thought it would be interesting, since we have about three weeks or so of responses to that, to go over some of the answers that we had gotten. And to begin with, the answer that I, and I think I think you too, Kelly, in the previous episode suggested would be, 
our choice for most likely to work was uh, ceasefire plus peace talks. Did we agree on you that? You did. I said that we should appeal to whatever Scorpios live in the region and have them find a common enemy that they can join forces against because that's what works in my own personal conflicts. So I have to imagine it works on a global scale with military powers. That's right. That's right. Uh, I must have had an oversight on my part and forgot to include that in the options on this uh, particular Spotify. Poll. And you just chose to believe that Kelly came up with a more rational, principled approach to the question and forgot that I am still Kelly. Mm-hmm. So, well, apparently me, my solution was ceasefire plus peace talks. Specifically, we talked about returning of the hostages that were taken. And actually, immediately after the release of that episode, that's exactly what happened. They did end up signing a ceasefire. There were some hostages exchanged, uh, but I was wrong. I think what we should do here at the beginning of this episode is kind of catch everybody up on the last three weeks or so and what's happened post ceasefire and hostage exchange. I remember you... You were the one who told me about it essentially right after the episode was completed that there was a ceasefire, but it was an incredibly temporary one. And I think what we're talking about with the polling here was a permanent ceasefire, which is not the case. Yeah, well, the hope would have been that at least any sort of ceasefire would act as a show of good faith on both sides. And maybe that could serve as the building blocks for scaling down conflict. But what actually happened was as soon as the hostages were exchanged and it seemed as though both sides got back everybody that they were going to, we went right back to conflict. There were more bombings than ever from the Israeli side and there were land incursions now from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And so it seemed as though uh, things exacerbated after the ceasefire, not establish this foundation for peace that we had hoped for, maybe a little bit too optimistically? Perhaps the messaging that people took from it with the fact that it was end dated was that brinksmanship, essentially, that if we are in a temporary ceasefire, we could use this as a launching pad for a permanent peace process. Or we can think about the way that our opponent is strategizing in response to this. And as soon as the ceasefire is no longer in effect, they'll probably go back to military tactics. So we need to as well. Mm -hmm. So we had episode release. We had ceasefire. We had hostage exchange. We went right back to violence. And that was not just in the scale of the violence that we saw an increase, but also specific instances that didn't seem to be happening before. Just a couple of days ago, we had hostages that were shot. Uh, we had a journalist that was killed. And in fact, uh, I think the number at the time of this recording was 66 journalists have been killed in this conflict, 56 or so on the Palestinian side, four on the Israeli side, and um, four unattached to either side, which is pretty extreme as far as mortality rates for for journalists go in a conflict of this period of time. Yeah, journalists are definitely treated like a protected participant or a observer in conflict. They are, generally speaking, not usually armed, and they are not affiliated with one side or the other. They are there to report what is happening and generally are 
exempt from being targets, but that doesn't seem to have been the case in this particular conflict as well as it should have been upheld. Well, and then to be fair, like we talked about in the first episode on this, uh, hospitals are also typically off limits in conflicts, and that has not been the case here either. So, you know, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that journalists have been targeted as well, or if not targeted, at least there's not been an effort made to avoid them. Yeah, I'm trying to put it as neutrally as possible and ramp up to my usual level of cynicism. But I, I can get very cynical off the, off the jump if you'd like. <laughs> well, this is part two. So we're already starting from a, a point of cynicism established in the first episode. Well, we have to you know warm up the listeners who skipped the first episode. Speaking of cynicism, the last thing that I think is worth noting since three weeks ago is there have also been a lot much more serious talk by international organizations like the United Nation calling for a reinstatement of the ceasefire. In fact, in the first episode, we talked for a good bit about how international voices, uh, different leaders of various countries, uh, Justin Trudeau, for example, were specifically avoiding the term ceasefire. And now it does seem as though people have come around and the entire world is calling for a ceasefire, except Notably, the United States, who vetoed that UN resolution. So it didn't pass. Knock me over with a feather. So uh, that was option number one that I wanted to talk about based on last episode's poll. Ceasefire slash hostage exchange did not create a long-term solution. So I was wrong on that one. The most common response that we got from you all indubitably listeners, at 44%, double every other response, was a two-state solution. So I thought it would be worthwhile talking about that for a bit in this particular episode. How likely do you think a two-state solution is to work? I do not think it is extremely likely or it would have already happened. There are just too many physical locations that are in dispute that they could not be equitably divided between the two states that would be formed as a result. And maybe there would be some sort of future where they treat specific areas that have a shared history between Israel and Palestine, maybe treat them like, I don't know, the Vatican, (laughs) make them a sort of neutral third state that is neither and both of them at the same time. But I just don't see a way that they can come to an agreement on how to handle these disputed areas. You hear that, indubitably, listeners? You voted, you told us your opinion, and Kelly is flat out disagreeing with you. So if you were on the fence as to which your favorite host of Indubitably is, I feel like this should help you make up your mind. You're coming out swinging today. I have said nothing mean about you yet. (laughs) I mean, okay, to be fair, I also don't think the two-state solution is likely to work. When you cite specific regions, I think the biggest challenge, and we did discuss this a bit in the first episode as well, would be Jerusalem. For a quick bit of geography to serve as perhaps useful clarification on this topic, while the vast majority of the events of the last two and a half months have taken place in the Gaza Strip, Gaza is only one of two regions that make up Palestine within Israel, and is notably the smaller of those two regions. The other is the West Bank, which is located on the eastern side of Israel, bordering the country of Jordan. Now, Jerusalem is actually connected to the West Bank, not the Gaza Strip. But when we're talking about two-state solutions, it's almost a given that the West Bank would be included as well as the Gaza Strip. 
And that is what makes Jerusalem such an important factor to consider. It's also relatively logical to infer that any conflicts or solutions that apply between Israel and the Gaza Strip will have direct, if not identical, implications for the West Bank as well. So it's certainly salient here to discuss the West Bank and Jerusalem, even if they are geographically removed from the conflict in Gaza to a certain degree. So for a two-state solution to either include Jerusalem in one of the two states or to split Jerusalem in half or to try to co-manage, co-govern Jerusalem, um, these are all ideas that have been floated and none of them have been even realistically considered by either side. So if for no other reason, I think that Jerusalem makes the two-state solution impossible. You hear that indubitably, listeners? You voted and you said the two-state <laughs> solution was the most viable option and Josh is calling you idiots. <laughs> you did it first. <laughs> I think another reason that I find a two-state solution hard to buy, and this is a little bit ramping up the cynicism, I believe that Israel would want to keep both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank as buffer zones against any sort of attack. And in, in last episode, we talked there have been multiple attacks on Israel since its formation from the countries that surround it, and realistically, no reason to think that that won't happen again. And I think that Israel likes having a chunk of land in between it and surrounding countries that is occupied by Palestinians to ensure that they don't have to share a border with country that might end up invading them. Now, I don't know about that. The physical barrier makes sense if we're talking about, I think, exclusively like land and sea wars, but we're also talking about countries who have the ability to launch missiles over, you know, the Gaza Strip. <laughs> so I don't know how much of a, an actual protective barrier that parcel of land is providing. Well, Israel does have uh, what's called the Iron Dome, where it's it literally a missile defense system that shoots down those rockets, etc., that are launched over the border. And the more distance those rockets have to cover, the more effective that Iron Dome is going to be at shooting them down. Will some missiles land in Israel? Yes, but I think the more space that's there to give them a chance to respond, the better in Israel's mind. Point, Josh. <laughs> um, and then the last reason I think the two-state solution isn't super viable is a lot of the rhetoric, which we'll talk about later in this episode as well, but a lot of the rhetoric from countries that surround Israel and Hamas in particular itself is just that Israel should not exist, period. It's not a matter of, hey, let's just all have a fair amount of this land. It's that Israel should not be a country that exists on this earth. And we've also seen an uptick, again, we'll talk about it later, of similar sentiments uh, from the Israeli side that we should be wiping out Hamas completely. Uh, some people have gone as far as to say we should be wiping out Gaza completely. And as long as those sentiments exist, they don't seem conducive towards a two-state solution. Right. It's hard to compromise and share with a country in a way that doesn't seemingly legitimize that country's existence. There's so many reasons I think that this is just not a realistic solution. I do, however, think that it would be the most ideal solution. Mm. It seems like if it was possible, it would be a good solution. I just think there are so many barriers to the possibility of it. 
Now, maybe we're doing a disservice here to our listeners. The the question is, is there a solution likely to work? Maybe, you know, if we give them limited options here to choose from, none of these are likely to work. So maybe this is the most likely out of a list of pessimistic options. Yeah, is there a lesson here that this is going to be a forever conflict? Certainly seems that way as of now. The other thing I found interesting, so the last response that we got that I'd like to talk about are our other options, if the listeners are curious, either aren't on Spotify or haven't looked at this yet, in which case you should, would be regime change in Gaza got 16%. I thought that was a bit strange because to me, um, removing Hamas as the governing faction of Gaza would be a prerequisite to any solution. I would have thought when that one would have been a bit higher. Continued military action is at 13%. And that certainly seems to be Israel's tactic so far as we are going to keep up this aggression until we have basically no enemy anymore. And then the last one, this one I thought was interesting, coming in at only 2% of listeners was foreign intervention. So only 2% of people thought that foreign intervention was a solution that was likely to work. And I thought that's interesting because to me, that that says that the listeners are suggesting that this could be solved internally between Israel and Hamas. Well, I'd say that that seems incredibly unlikely as it stands. But moreover, there already is a degree of foreign intervention, if not having, you know, American troops on the ground. Literally, there's a figurative U.S. presence with the amount of aid that has been provided to Israel, which we talked about in the previous episode. And there's also been aid from the U.S. provided to Palestine. So the the, the world has a stake in this already. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe the Spotify doesn't give me very many characters to craft these polls in my defense, but maybe the assumption on our listeners part was that foreign intervention meant military. But I don't think foreign intervention is necessarily military intervention, but also things like the UN calling for a ceasefire. Theoretically, we could have boycotts, we could have embargoes, we could have sanctions, and um, these could put pressure on one side or the other that could potentially lead to them coming to the table. So I don't know. And I'm not saying foreign intervention is the solution. I think that one's correct. But I just found it interesting that only 2% of listeners thought that that would be a likely solution. What I take from this is that 98% of listeners are sick of the way the U.S. behaves internationally. Because I think when we think foreign intervention in this conflict, we're thinking primarily of the U.S. And we're a little bit sick of how involved it seems to get in everybody else's shit Mm. stepping away from this particular episode for a second spotify gives us the ability to do polls and also sort of an open-ended question on each episode to me you can tell me what your opinion is kelly but i really like when our listeners respond to these things because sometimes you put out a podcast we talk it feels a little bit one-sided And these polls is a cool way for us to kind of hear back from the audience. And with that open-ended question, it does give them an opportunity to explain, if they choose to, some of the answers they have. So I would encourage our listeners to also, you know, take advantage of that and let us know their thoughts on the episodes. Every episode, we do put out a question for y'all to respond. And as your favorite host of Indubitably, I listen and appreciate those answers. You don't always have to get to us via Spotify, though. You can reach out to us on Twitter. I'll die before I call it X. 
and Facebook. We're Indubitably Pod there and indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. Do I have the address, mm-hmm. right? I don't check the, the inbox. So for all I know, there's tons and tons of emails talking about how great Kelly is and Josh is just deleting them. Mm-hmm. I mean, what? <laughs> Moving on to the next section of this episode, <clears throat> what we're going to spend the majority of this episode talking about is sort of the coverage and social media strategies and messaging around the issue. As these events have persisted, this rhetoric around it has grown and in some ways evolved. And where last episode we covered some of the history and ethical considerations of the conflict, for this particular episode, we thought we would focus on that messaging that we're seeing around the issue. So we'll be going over some of the quotes, some of the hashtags, et cetera, that we've pulled from Twitter. Are we even going to go as far as saying formally known? No. Okay. I will walk um, away. I'll walk out of this <laughs> Zoom call. So uh, Twitter, Facebook, billboards, interestingly enough, uh, etc. Ads on Candy Crush. Really? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that one. Yep. So we'll, we'll, Okay. You'll have to bring that up later. Yep. And I think to start this conversation about the messaging, in my mind, the overarching sort of strategy or how we can define this messaging from both sides is a battle to claim ownership over the status of the victim, right? Both sides want to say, hey, we are the one that's being victimized here, and therefore, it's justified that we do X, Y, Z. Yeah, they're preying on sympathies. It's much easier to garner support when people think that you've been treated unfairly than to garner support for taking an aggressive stance and owning up to the aggressiveness of that stance. And I don't think that this concept is summarized any better than the two hashtags that we might be seeing most commonly. That would be one, hashtag stand with Israel versus two, hashtag free Palestine. To exemplify how these hashtags are being used in the discourse is much different in this era of the media and the internet than previous conflicts have been. There's a quote here. Polls, hashtags, Instagram stories, and college demonstrations show that my generation, Generation Z, is more skeptical of Israel than older Americans. On TikTok, where half the users are under 30, hashtag free Palestine has 31 billion posts compared to 590 million for Stand With Israel, more than 50 times as many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is pulled from an article where the author is looking at uh, TikTok in particular and showing the discrepancy between the two sides, at least in the eyes of the under 30 crowd, which let's be realistic. If we're going to be talking about online messaging, social media, et cetera, this is going to be the vast majority of people um, who we discuss. I'm just so pleased to use TikTok and get grouped in with Gen Z. Oh, you're so young, Kelly. Yeah, that's it. So 50 times as many uses of hashtag free Palestine as compared to hashtag stand with Israel. I think that speaks to A, the attitude of those generations, B, the effectiveness of the campaigning on the part of that side, and C, maybe just the facts on the ground in terms of what just the actions that these two sides have taken. 
on TikTok in particular, the amount of pressure from users to kind of um, shame other users into using Free Palestine and for abandoning their normal content in favor of actually talking about the issue was very fever pitch, probably late October, early November, where if you normally post about, let's say I, I post about books and other people post about books. And then suddenly one of the top book talkers is like, I'm not talking about books anymore. I'm talking about Palestine. And so should all of you. And if you're going to review novels here and not talk about Palestine, you're part of the problem. So the sort of pressure that people are exerting on one another there, I think is unique in a way that we didn't see on other types of social media until now. Mm. And do you think there's something to be said about Free Palestine obviously isn't saying free Hamas. Is it easier to separate Hamas from Palestine as a whole, as opposed to the Israeli side, where, yes, as we discussed in the last episode, we should not be just grouping together Netanyahu and and some of the supporters of the war, the leadership of Israel with the average Israeli. But at the same time, they're both Israeli, as opposed to a distinction between this is Hamas and this is a Palestinian. I, I think the rhetoric I've been seeing the most, and I've been spending less time on TikTok. I know that's probably hard to believe, but a lot of people are pointing to the fact that Israel is being indiscriminate and in how it's targeting basically all Palestinians. And um, the association with Hamas doesn't seem to matter whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the amount of children who have died and other um, people who are unfairly put in the center of Israeli sites, that was, I think, the emotional pull for so many people to take up the Free Palestine hashtag. Mm-hmm. Let's hold that idea for a second, because we're definitely going to talk about the numbers and and how this conflict has been exponentially growing, specifically over the last three weeks. But in terms of just these hashtags, I, I think the other thing that's interesting about TikTok and this 50 to 1 ratio is it also shows a pretty extreme disconnect between the Gen Zers, the under 30 crowd, and either A, older individuals or politicians. We've just seen an unwillingness to condemn Israel or support Palestine from, at least in the US, basically any of our politicians, despite the fact that there's this overwhelming majority of people who do support, not Hamas, but you know the Palestinians who are under siege right now from the constituency. That's possible. But I also think that TikTok is still an unrepresentative sample of people. Not every person who's under 30 is on TikTok. And there are probably politicians who disagree with the stand with Israel hashtag who are not on TikTok either. So there's a lot to be said about social media being like self-perpetuating in an echo chamber. And there are probably tons of people who um, may have differing opinions, but feel like they've been excluded from the from the discussion on TikTok and maybe have retreated to other forms of social media. Maybe they prefer Truth Social or Facebook to TikTok. So, but, it, you know, there's so many people on TikTok. I'd say it's it's a pretty stark contrast between the two hashtags, but I don't think it's telling the full story. Is Truth Social still a thing? Is it still surviving? I don't fucking know. I just can't. I was like, what are, where do conservatives hang out? Facebook, um, Facebook still exists, though. Yeah. Speaking of this attempt to capture the victimhood status, 
one of the strategies that we're seeing maybe most commonly, particularly on the Palestinian side, is by highlighting the sheer scale of the conflict and the subsequent impacts. And so this goes back to what you were just saying. As the conflict goes on, we definitely see not just the support of Palestine pulling ahead of the support of Israel, but also, you know, unfortunately, the numbers of victims are racking up at a far faster rate on the Palestinian side than they are on the Israeli side. Uh, The question is, do statements like 25,000 Palestinians have become orphans during the course of this conflict, how much weight do those statements have in terms of garnering support from the general world population? I think we start to become desensitized to numbers, especially higher numbers, like how people cannot conceptualize a billion when they're thinking about the disparity between a millionaire and a billionaire. The sheer scale is just, you can't comprehend it. 25,000 people is a hard number to, to really get your head around. And the people who comprise that number don't have faces when you put them in a big group like this. They don't have individual stories. They lack the personhood and just become a data point. But it's important to know how many people are affected, but that can't be the entirety of the story if you are talking about trying to make this issue an emotional one as well as a logical one. Mm-hmm. Even in the last episode, you know, we were going through the context, introducing the severity of this particular conflict. And for us, we're trying to explain to our listeners just how bad this is, why they should be listening to the episode, why they should care if they don't know about it already, why they should learn about it. And uh, certainly if you were to go back to our last episode, I know we talked about similar statistics. Um, And now more recently, we have things like 305,000 residential units have been destroyed or damaged. 19,000 433 at the time of this recording, people killed in Palestine, including 7,729 children. And if you really stop and try to conceptualize how many that would be, man, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. But I think it takes, even to a number like 7,000, it takes a lot of mental gymnastics to sort of visualize that many people and imagining them just gone and when you start getting up to you know 20,000 i don't know i don't know my brain can't keep up with it and i'm not a psychologist that should surprise no one but i think our brains kind of protect us when we start to think about the enormity of the number of people we're talking about and make it into a more abstract idea because engaging with the fact that 25,000 individual people or 305 homes or almost 20,000 people like those numbers need to be abstract or our brain is going to start to like lose the ability to function. I saw something on Twitter about um, a person who was approaching compassion fatigue and starting to feel very overwhelmed by the fact that nobody else was constantly emotionally traumatized by the fact of what was happening. And um, looking away felt selfish and um, refusing to 
read every single story felt selfish and like it was a negligence. And we 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 can't do that. We we cannot psychologically withstand doing that because then we lose the ability to function as well as the ability to be compassionate. We still have to like go to work and stuff and, and live our lives in addition to caring about what's actually happening. But if we exclusively care about what's happening and personalize every single one of these fatalities, we will collapse. Mm-hmm. You get a feeling of desperation when you see the social media accounts of the people who are in Israel, in Palestine, trying to educate the rest of the world about what's happening. And I think it comes from them living it. It's not just 19,000 blank faces. 20 of those faces were their family and friends that they have relationships with. And they have that context and they have that gravitas to the situation. But then when they're trying to explain it to the rest of the world that doesn't know Uncle Irve, that doesn't have that kind of background, and they, they're like, what can I do to convince them? And they're like, well, thousands and thousands, and they're throwing that out there. But like you said, whether it's psychological or just fatigue, when that doesn't land on their audience, that has to be incredibly frustrating. Which is why it might be more impactful to pull out a few stories or images. And I think we've seen that through many global conflicts, especially once, you know, media was able to distribute images very um, quickly, that having a very striking example of what all of this actually looks like, one individual representative of the whole, perhaps throughout many global conflicts we've observed, may be what bridges the gap between dealing with the enormity of the numbers, but also acknowledging the horror of the situation. Maybe a different case study that we can look at that I, that I think is applicable would be the number of orphaned children just in the world, separate from the Israel-Palestine conflict. And one of the strategies that organizations attempting to help these children use is when you donate money, you're not donating money to help the whatever, 500,000 homeless children in sub-Saharan Africa, they now let you sponsor a particular child, right? So it's this kid is the one that your money is going to. And that seems to tug on something to keep you donating a little bit more effectively than just thinking about the sheer untackable scale of the problem overall. Yeah, it's about whatever messaging is actually going to work on on a human brain that is trying to protect itself from emotional and psychological trauma. And helping one person feels like doing something, whereas doing nothing for 25,000 faceless people doesn't quite feel like not doing anything when it's just a number. Mm-hmm. And they have used this strategy in, in this particular conflict too. So I was actually in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and I was walking by a random fence. And on this fence were, I didn't count, but seemed like hundreds of flyers. And each flyer was an individual Israeli hostage with their name, their face, when they were taken, how long they've been missing, um, a little bit of a bio about them. And so I, I found that relatively effective to be walking by you know, face after face after face and literally putting faces to numbers 
as opposed to going on Twitter and X number of characters and trying to fit in the biggest statistic possible to to convince me that how horrible the conflict is. Like I, I obviously it's horrible and those numbers do mean something, but as a population, it's hard to capture our attention with just that, I think. And that example also avoids some of the pitfalls of social media because you can avoid the things that upset you on social media very easily. You can scroll or, you know, swipe or what have you. But if you have no choice but to walk down that street, you have no choice but to come face to face with the messaging in a way that is less escapable than than all the other forms. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to, it's been uh, since October 7th was the initial Hamas attack. And then subsequently, it's been pretty dominated by Israeli aggression. But two and a half months later, again, that sense of desperation that they're losing the public attention seems to be coming to fruition to the point that one of the hashtags that I came across researching for this episode was literally hashtag don't stop talking about Palestine, which implies that people have indeed stopped talking about Palestine. I think we called this in the last episode when we were talking about how even some of the most egregious Global events that have happened over the past couple of years seem to fade out of public discourse really quickly, even though the issues themselves haven't been resolved. And we kind of anticipated that that was going to be the case in this particular conflict as well, when people started to get fatigued by the topic, when other news stories with more unique figures and unique actors involved in them um, overtook the headlines and this became kind of tired as a topic. So it doesn't surprise me at all that people are trying to keep the discourse alive about this issue. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples we brought up was the war in Ukraine. I mean, that was the Israel-Hamas conflict of three months ago. And now I can't remember the last time that I heard anything about it. In fact, I had to go online to the BBC's um, homepage. And there's a headline there that says, Ukraine war. Kiev, capital of Ukraine, forced to cut military operations as foreign aid dries up. And given that we were writing the script for this episode, I had to think we're talking about messaging, we're talking about capturing public attention. There has to be a connection between the lack of public attention on Ukraine and now the lack of foreign aid. Yeah. Um, I can say this because I have ADHD, so it's not an insult coming from me. But I think the global news cycle and political actors, especially those who have resources, kind of have a, a form of ADHD as, as well, when if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And we haven't really had a lot of exposure to the topic of what's been happening in Ukraine. So we don't think about it as much. We're more horrified or delighted by having something new to talk about in a different part of the world. and. Um, Yeah, conflicts don't just disappear because we're not looking at them. Mm -hmm. And if I were to, which I am, look at the front page of the BBC website right now, time of the recording, if you want to fact check me, Monday, December 18th at 8 p.m., the lead article is Rescuers Brave Freezing Temperatures as China Quake Kills More Than 100. 
Uh, second biggest article, Marvel drops majors after assault conviction. Third biggest article, volcano erupts in southwest Iceland. And then off to the side, Hamas shows video of three elderly Israeli hostages. So I think that this is the first time that I've opened up a, a news site in the last uh, two months. And the main story has not been about Israel and Hamas. Yeah, Israel and Hamas is so October. But I think this is dangerous because one of the things we said in the intro was this conflict in some ways is defining how the world responds to this sort of action. And I think we said it last episode, part of Israel's strategy seems to be, well, we can keep this going. And if we just wait out the world's attention, at a certain point, we're going to be able to do whatever we want without repercussions. We just have to withstand that initial two months of fervor, you know, call condemning whatever aggressions or backlash, etc. And if we can do that, we're going to get our way and we're going to get out of this clean. Yeah, it seems gross and cynical and, and wrong, but it seems like an effective tactic, too. This mindset um, leads to pretty much just abject failure in certain efforts that have been made by populations to take tangible action to try to influence the decisions of the Israeli government of Hamas or the Palestinian people. One of them that was almost laughable, I don't even know if you heard about it, was there was a, a boycott that we were all supposed to participate in on December 11th. Yeah, I heard about it on TikTok. I mean, I still spend some time there. And it seems kind of ridiculous in its premise, which was to not engage at all with the economy, to buy nothing. I'm actually checking my bank right now. And I accidentally participated in the boycott. I was not <laughs> not deliberately trying to not buy anything that day, but I just kind of incidentally did. I heard about this December 11th boycott on December 12th. <laughs> womp womp. So <laughs> well, what did you buy? And you bought so much stuff on the 11th so you were really like ethically compromised i mean i don't buy much stuff ever anyways but the people behind this whether it's optimism or just delusion that led them to thinking that this would work i, I don't really understand it i, I think if something like this was going to happen it would have had to happen much earlier when you still had the attention and the will of a wider population, but to do it this late in the process just seems silly. And now once it's failed once, there's no way it's going to work again in the future. Yeah, things like this are ridiculous and impractical. There are going to be people who have to engage with the economy. They're going to have to buy something in order to like live their lives. A lot of these like generalized, you should or should not do a thing are very like privileged and exclusionary types of types of actions. Like other times people have said, we should have a general strike. And it's like, okay, well, what do people do who need the money to like feed their children? Are you going to condemn them for participating in the economy? Um, perhaps a more effective effort would have been boycotting specific retailers who have ties to something you don't support, but everybody. Well, and that's what's strange about this is the the BDS movement, this is boycott, divestment, and sanctions has actually been a thing for a, a pretty long time, there has been a movement to try and divest 
from Israeli businesses, Israeli interests uh, for, I want to say, a decade. This is something that we've been discussing in the debate community as topics at tournaments, for example, for years now. And so with that kind of framework already laid, I remember thinking when I did finally on a December 12th hear about the December 11th boycott, I remember thinking it's strange that they didn't just double down on this uh, divestment of Israeli interests as opposed to like what you're saying, like, let's just not buy anything anywhere ever. I almost guarantee you that people who are talking about the boycott have no idea about the other strategies. Not to like cast aspersions on their on their uh, motivation or call them like stupid or anything. But I have a feeling that people heard boycott and just ran with it and didn't do any research into thinking about what other strategies might also be effective if there were existing movements to also amplify. It, it just starts to snowball when it gets on social media like that. Well, and this is why people need to be reaching out to you and I, Kelly, when they need to communicate because we know how to do it effectively. Five-star rating. Uh, Yeah, I'm so good at all this stuff. <laughs> I certainly feel that way today. Um. Anyway, so again, like you said, I don't want to belittle the idea behind it, but it, it certainly didn't seem to portray an understanding of how people think, how to galvanize, how to motivate, the importance of time sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think that was a particularly effective form of rhetoric in regards to this issue. In contrast, one thing that I saw randomly um, that I thought was particularly interesting was a billboard driving home from work. And the billboard said, Hamas is your problem too. Obviously put up by pro-Israel supporters. Did the billboard say anything about how Hamas is your problem? I think the implication is that it's a terrorist group in the Middle East, and if they are prone to violence against Israel, it's a short step to think that they might be prone to violence against the United States as well. Which, to be fair, I think if Hamas had the ability to, they would very likely attempt an attack on the U.S. I just don't think they have the ability to. Yeah, so hashtag not my problem. But but I do think it's interesting because it's a more effective tactic that sort of breaks the mold of everything else we've been talking about. Everything else we've been talking about is, hey, please empathize with us. We are being victimized. We need your help. And I, I think in on both sides, there's cases where that's very true. This billboard in particular was, hey, do this for yourself. I just think that's more effective rhetoric in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Maybe now we should analyze the rhetoric of the ads I saw on Candy Crush. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk. Do those fit in here? Yeah, I, I because they are definitely a departure from, I think, any other sort of rhetoric I've seen um, in more traditional media or in social media. So the ads in question basically display some interview footage from one of the leaders of Hamas talking about the way that they use tunnels to escape airstrikes from Israel. And then there's like text across the screen of, don't you think it's sick that they're like using tunnels for their own safety rather than just for general Palestinians? Like Hamas is so selfish. They're 
like horrible to Palestine too. But unlike other types of rhetoric I've seen, they are kind of establishing a distinction between Hamas and Palestine in a way that demonizes Hamas and justifies the attacks that Israel is conducting against Hamas and Palestine. Right. So both of these tactics, and I think, again, you don't have to like this. I'm not saying it's a positive thing, but I think it's accurate. We are, as a species, moved more intimately by fear or hatred than we are by empathy. Yeah. And this one, I think, was going towards hatred of Hamas. That's horrible. Hamas. They're doing awful things to everybody. Hate them. Mm -hmm. Justify killing them. Even separate from this issue, if you think about elections, particularly in the past eight to 10 years, a lot of candidates have used similar rhetoric and done quite well um, getting elected to president of the United States, not based on, hey, let's empathize with these portions of the American population that might be suffering, but rather we need to protect ourselves from X or X is coming over to attack us, whether it's our identity, our economy, our literal selves, etc. I think this all goes to validate my position that having a common enemy is an effective unifying tactic. I said it as a joke last time, but it really is a tactic that people use to garner favor for their cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and relatively effective on the Israeli side. Hamas is not just our enemy um, being Israel, but it is our enemy, meaning literally you and me as well, right? Hamas stands counter to our lifestyle beliefs and if given the chance would likely take action against us as well we should be scared and we should join israel in their struggle to eradicate them from the world for the best interests of all of us my only enemy is you when you decide to come at me when we're recording and every republican <laughs> i don't i don't come at you i just want our listeners to know who's who's on their side and who's not uh, I um, vote Kelly as favorite indubitably host. She doesn't do nearly as much work as Josh does, but that just shows that she's the smart one. <laughs> <laughs> you get all the credit with that other work. Yeah. Anyway, so the problem the problem with these is, I think the problem is actually that they are effective. As much as we probably don't like to admit it, this sort of rhetoric does capture and keep the attention of the general public better than empathy, better than stories of victims, better than numbers and statistics. And so because of that, if we're talking about rhetoric and analyzing the rhetoric on this or issues like it in general, it's going to tend towards extremes. Right? Public discourse rarely moderates itself over the course of an issue. It typically gets bigger and bigger and louder, more violent, more sensational, more extreme, because it has to in order to keep attention as a particular scenario drags on. And that makes perfect sense. These sorts of messages have to be distilled down to something that people can understand and they need to be presented in a way that attaches to other things that they already hold as true. So introducing a new idea to them that they've never considered before with details that they've never analyzed before 
is going to probably shut a lot of people out of the process. They're probably not going to want to engage with that whatsoever. But if you're like, this is going to ultimately mean that bombs get dropped on America. I'm an American. I care about that. And I understand what bombs are. So there you go. I understand the position, even though it's the hyperbolic position. Mm -hmm. This has led to things like calls for Gaza to be, quote, flattened, erased, or destroyed. This sort of call to action has been mentioned about 18,000 times since October 7th in Hebrew posts on Twitter. Those same phrases were only mentioned 16 times in the month and a half before the war. Not not 16,000, 16. So after October 7th, 18,000 times on Twitter, people called for Gaza to be flattened, erased, or destroyed. So certainly a pretty rapid ramp up in rhetoric after the October 7th attacks. And what we also see when advocacy in any sort of context gains momentum is that people who are deemed as credible and authoritative on whatever side the issue is kind of write the script for how other people should be talking about this. And like we we do it too. I send pre-filled form letters to Congress people about certain like disability rights bills that I want them to pass. I don't want to spend all the time coming up with my own language to talk about this issue. But if somebody starts to use keywords that uh, are extreme and easy to remember, and I want to talk about the issue too, I'm probably going to continue using those keywords as well, even though they seem extremely like violent in this case. And that's the whole idea behind the concept of trending, right? There is a most effective way to post something, whether that be a song Kim Kardashian, a particular dance move, or literally pushing your side of a conflict like this. And to be fair, Israel has dealt with this same sort of rhetoric since its inception, just refusal to recognize its existence, calls for it to be destroyed. So it's been, I suppose, relatively common on the Israeli side to hear things like this, but certainly, like we talked about earlier, There'll be spikes in this rhetoric every time things are exacerbated like they certainly are now. And it would be one thing if it just stayed in the realm of rhetoric, but especially when tensions are this high, when people are this emotionally affected or involved with the conflict, this can turn from just a discussion and into some actual actions that have pretty severe consequences. Yeah, we've seen pretty major upticks in both Islamophobic and anti-Semitic attacks, and that started almost immediately. We we discussed this in the last episode, so this is certainly not a new occurrence in the last three weeks. This is basically from October 7th on, we've seen huge spikes in actual violence directed at people who <laughs> don't even necessarily have anything to do with this conflict. I think last time, Kelly, you mentioned there was a landlord that attacked their tenants who weren't even Palestinian. Yeah. And that, I think, is another thing that you see over and over again is lumping people in with other people who share similar characteristics and 
assuming that they all have the same sort of motivations, beliefs, and capacity for harm to others, and instead turn them into victims. And we saw that after 9-11, I think it's one of the most salient recent examples, but that's just kind of our MO as oppressors throughout global history. But this begs the question then, if rhetoric can be dangerous, if the messaging that we put out there can lead to action, it's not just words, should we limit it? And we have one good example of that where the U.S. Congress did censure one of its representatives, Rashida Tlaib, who is the only Palestinian member of the United States Congress. And uh, literally every Republican, go figure, and 22 Democrats also, though, voted to censure the comments that she made on this particular issue. Now, what exactly did she say that was so extreme that they felt they needed to censure her? Well, she's she said mostly things that I think would be reasonable. And, and again, in the United States, we do have a presumption of the right to freedom of speech. So in my mind, any sort of censure, and, and maybe she's under different rules as a government official, it's not just her saying it out there on the street, but in my mind, the vast majority of what she said doesn't come anywhere close to justifying a censure. Um, she's pointed out that Palestinian children are the same as Israeli children or children anywhere else in the world. That's obviously reasonable. Um, to be fair, a little bit more controversially, she has accused President Biden of supporting a Palestinian genocide over his administration's resistance to a general ceasefire. You know, that's strong words, but again, given the U.S.'s standards for free speech, I don't think that it's necessarily unreasonable. Uh, the closest that she got, in my mind, to justifying this censure would be her use of the phrase, from the river to the sea which, again, we were talking about earlier, there's particular phrases that get picked up and used over and over and over again and take on a meeting. And this one is considered by some people as a call for ending Israel's existence. Tlaib herself said it is, quote, an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. But um, if we are trying to justify a censure, I suppose that would be the closest you could get to it. Uh, I think it's important also to note, again, because of our commitment to free speech, in the history of the U.S. Congress, only 25 lawmakers have been censured. And so Tlaib becomes the 26th. So there's two questions, I think, that come from this. One is, should we limit speech about this issue altogether? And two, is there a different standard when we're talking about people in leadership positions? So. The rhetoric, I think, if any other person had said this sort of thing, and other people do say that sort of thing, is protected, and people can engage with the concepts and have you know discourse about it. Whether they should say it isn't really the purview of law, but we as people who can evaluate whether or not it's a good idea to say that sort of thing can weigh in. But then when it comes to people who are in Congress... Are they held to a different standard and should they be held to a different standard? I think, yes, they are held to a different standard, obviously, because censure exists. But two, is that right? And this is a whole nother, you know, something we should probably do an episode on of just in what cases should free speech be limited. But I think 
you know, relevant to this particular episode, it does highlight exactly how important rhetoric is. Words create impactful, tangible change in the world, uh, sometimes for good and sometimes not. The examples that we've talked about through this episode, certainly some more effectively, some less effectively, are attempting to garner that kind of support. Hey, our side, we're the victims. We need your help in ceasing the actions of the other side. We need your help in arming us to continue our operations. We need your help in feeding us, providing us supplies, etc. If you can't get the words right, you are not going to get the actionable support. Yeah, at a minimum, um, we should... I should take a better um, active stance on posting updates on our social media to um, make sure that this issue is something that does not disappear. Regardless of what side of the issue you fall on, it is happening. Um, it's real. It's impactful. And we should have our um, attention towards it as much as we can handle. Yeah. And I guess that's one point of the episode is on the side of the individuals who are doing the messaging ways of trying to make it more effective and and maintaining attention. But then on the side of the receivers of that messaging, you know, as much as possible, like you said, try to fight back against the fatigue, right? Try to keep yourself informed on these issues, even though we certainly get cynical pretty often on the podcast. It's hard to pay attention to these things without it. And that can definitely take a toll on people. But Every one of the things we talk about, there are people who are living it and being affected by it. And I think just as a species, this is me getting about as hippie as I generally get. It's good to just recognize, you know, what everybody else is going through. Yeah. And I, I want to second the the self-care aspect of this, too. It, you cannot constantly put your attention and emotional interest in a thing that is going to drain you to this extent even though it is important and even though people do genuinely care about it, I would just caution you away from your form of escapism being Candy Crush because they're running some really weird ads. Well, if you want to learn more about this stuff, we do try to post on it. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook at Indubitably Pod. If you don't want to be overwhelmed by this stuff, we also from time to time post pictures of cats. So either way, Indubitably Pod, Facebook, Twitter, follow us. Thank you. I know it was hard for you to say that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what the question will be, but like we said earlier, I personally, as the favorite of the Indubitably hosts, really enjoy the engagement that we get from the polling and from the questions on Spotify. It just turns the conversation a little bit more into a, a two-way thing instead of us speaking into the void. So feel free. We do track it. We do read it. Uh, we do appreciate it. And we hope to be able to do more of those things as more of you engage with it. And with that, by the way, we hope that you are having a peaceful and safe holiday season. And hopefully the next time you hear from us, we might have a topic that's a little lighter than this, but I don't know how much lighter than this, but it's almost impossible to get any heavier than this. So look forward to whatever we come up with next. <laughs> that's true. This is going to be releasing at the end of the year. So Merry Christmas, uh, probably for this episode, Happy Hanukkah, all of the holidays that you might celebrate. Happy New Year. And yeah, why don't we just promise them that our first episode of the new year will be 
significantly more lighthearted than our last couple. Hanukkah's over. We don't know when they're listening to this. They could be listening to this in the past. Our next Hanukkah. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Anyway, have a happy new year. We'll see y'all 2024.